You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with our good friend Christine Skarda, an ordained Tibetan Buddhist nun, a philosopher, and scientific theorist whose professional career has spanned the fields of philosophy, neurophysiology, and cognitive science. We'll get started with that conversation after a short musical break. Musical selections on today's program are from a CD called Short Tales for a Vial, English Music of the 17th Century for Viola da Gamba and Lyra Vial, performed by Vittorio Gielmi. This track is called A Labyrinth. <laughs> This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and co-director with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, Rob and I speak in the studio with our good friend Christine Skarda, an ordained Tibetan Buddhist nun, a philosopher and scientific theorist whose professional career has spanned the fields of philosophy, neurophysiology, and cognitive science. She has both drawn on and contributed to the insights of these fields in her quest to understand the nature of perception. This quest eventually propelled her out of the research laboratory and onto the meditation cushion, where Skarda turned to methods of inquiry drawn from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition to study the perceptual process from another angle. In her day none, Skarda has by now spent over a decade and a half in meditation retreat in the United States and India under the guidance of some of the greatest living members of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama and His Holiness Chetsung Rinpoche. She returned to America in 2007 and continues her retreat in California. Occasionally she leaves retreat to lecture or teach to a diverse audience, offering her scientific background to Buddhists and her Buddhist insights to scientists and philosophers. 
Christine Scarda, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thanks, Stuart. I'm so glad to be here. I just love being here. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you, and um, we're delighted to have you, of course. So um, um, before we uh, get into some of the topics that we had in mind to discuss today, I'll just ask you if, if there's any notable new developments in 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 your life your your uh, direction the circumstances of um who you've been i know you had a last year you had some health challenges mm. and um and i'm and i i don't doubt i don't know if that's something you want to discuss or anything but um but um uh, having just had a uh, um appendectomy a week ago today not quite exactly a week ago um I understand that that health is important. It uh, is. <laughs> <laughs> so so, but but it doesn't have to be about that. I'm just wondering if there's anything else new happening and going on for you. Um. Well, there's always. I'm always surprised by what's happens. I don't. It isn't like I have a plan. I I don't really have a plan. Um. Mm-hmm. Uh. I I just I when I got back to the states, I think it must have been. A, in 2008, actually, or to late 2008, I uh, finished a retreat that I'd been doing for almost four years. So it was a specific retreat. It required mm-hmm. re- mantra recitation, 10 million. In, a, in, the, in the Tibetan tradition. In Tibetan tradition, right? right? And I got done, and I thought, <clears throat> I don't know what to do next. And now I'm in the United States, and I haven't been here for a decade and a half, right? Um and I just kind of threw it up in the air and said, well, whatever happens. And what happened was I got part of my library back from when I had, before I left for India. It's mm-hmm. the only thing I had left was my books and not all of them, just a third of my books. And um, I got I opened up the boxes, and um, one book jumped out at me, which was Robert Graves' book on the White Goddess, which I had had since 1970, and I'd never read. And um, I started reading that book, and it made me suddenly aware of the fact that I'd been doing tantric practice. I mean, I knew this, and um, but it made me painfully aware of the fact that I'd been doing tantric practice and nobody ever explained any of the imagery. Mm-hmm. And um, Graves talks a lot about, well, he doesn't call them symbols exactly, but they are religious symbols. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very interested in sim- symbols, right? And um, I thought, you know what? I need to know about the symbols in my tantric practice because I don't. And Every time I've asked about them, they give me some kind of hand wave, and it's kind of like this, it's kind of like... And I thought, it couldn't be kind of, because Tantra is so precise. It's, I mean, in so many ways, it's so exact about... You're doing this thing, it's, it's got these yogic practices, they know exactly what's supposed to happen in your body. When you talk to your teacher, if you describe it wrong, they know you haven't gotten it, and so on. And I thought, it couldn't be that everything else is so exact, and the, the imagery is like, sort of? Mm-hmm. It's sort of, well, you know, they saw this from Hindu practice or whatever, I, I don't know, I, you don't have to worry about it. You know, just imagine yourself this way. Let me, let, let me just interject here because I'm I'm so curious. Do do you have 
any sense of why to you a woman from the West might have adopted that attitude. In other words, um, I mean, it, it could be just it would be take a long time to explain mm-hmm. that that's one possibility mm-hmm. so that was, but you're indicating negation that that you don't think that was the reason no no um yeah. does that mean you do have an idea of what the reason was i think that um i think that it was lost i think that when it went to um went from what is now Afghanistan and that area and came into india and then moved into tibet no the the experience of it was lost in the process because it went from one culture to another to another right and Mm -hmm. um the culture it 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 was female dominated apparently in afghanistan in the swat valley because all the stories we have are these guys go from india and they meet women there and the women teach them and then they bring it back to India. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and then it becomes male dominated in which the woman is a subver- sort of subordinate role. She helps the man get realized. But clearly the women weren't using men in the other practice. They were by themselves. So it's, t- and the imagery, although it has elements of it, of, you know, Hindu practice and so you know the imagery of the gods mm-hmm. hindu gods brahma sure. and so on shiva and all of that then it goes to tibet <laughs> well tibetans didn't know shiva from whatever right they didn't know the imagery at all mm-hmm. and um they had a kind of mountain shamanistic religion and it no images really it was naturalistic you know the mountain was the thing in it didn't look like anybody and so now they've got these images and and then it becomes not um a person to person kind of thing like me teaching you mm-hmm. it becomes um an academic thing it happens in a monastery mm-hmm. and it's taught by teachers who are teaching a bunch of people not one and so you see this i i think what happens is that the sense of what this stuff the power of those images gets in a way diluted and lost on the way that's how I feel about it now so so I have a a couple questions around Mm -hmm. that Uh, do you feel like the practices still retain some level of uh, potency for transformation despite the understanding of the uh, imagery Mm -hmm. and so am I correct to understand Mm -hmm. that what you're saying Mm -hmm. is that there's this powerful uh, practice that's been passed down, but uh, many of the people who are even responsible for transmitting it now don't really understand its complete ramifications. Oh, that was my first question. My first question was, well, well, so what happens if we don't, if the images don't speak, right? Mm-hmm. If they don't really speak to us, right? Um, and I had had a lot of experience with my teacher, Chetsung Rinpoche, and he kept saying, bemoaning the fact that Tantra was no longer as efficacious as it had been hmm. once. He said, you know, Mila Repa could practice this, and it had this absolutely startling result, right? He said, but we kind of play around with it. He had a a bunch of explanations. Maybe it could be this. Maybe, you know, maybe we're not keeping the secrets well enough. Maybe we aren't doing this or that, right? Huh. I mean, but he didn't really, and I really think it's because the imagery is so critical. And the reason it's so critical in Tantra is that Tantra is is entirely imagistic. 
you practice in imagery. You don't practice in words. You don't mm-hmm. practice in ideas. You don't practice. You practice as a as a visual. It's a totally visual experience, right? That you put yourself into a situation that's visualized. You visualize a body. You visualize channels. You visualize. And when I started. What I decided, well, you know, I haven't got a hope in heaven to figure out what these things probably mean, but I'm going to go and look at what these images mean in the areas of the world traditionally, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. In terms of what did they mean to like that, that language group, like Indo-European? What do they mean to Greeks? What did it mean to Persians? What did it mean to whatever, right? Sanskrit, what did it mean? So I started looking at them and I found out that they had a lot of commonality in all of those different groups of people in their meaning. And when I started looking at them and starting, like, I take the one image, like there's thousands of images in my tantra, right? So I decided to do them all. And it took me five years to do it. And I wrote 800 pages on it. So I've got, like, I take an image and I look at it and see where it was in the practice, what was happening in the practice. And then I look at the tradition, you know, at the traditions and see what did that image throw up? What did that, what, what happened when you, when that image was used, right? Who, mm-hmm. you know, and wow, that was absolutely earth shaking for me because what happened was I realized those images aren't haphazard at all. They're very well chosen and very well thought out. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they have everything to do with what you're doing. They're a way of, showing not saying but showing what's supposed to be going on what's your what's what's the dynamic of what's going on a lot of times not even an idea so, but a dynamic so so just to clarify for uh, our listeners would you say i mean someone might naturally assume that a a image like this mm-hmm. would be located culturally mm-hmm. so in other words that one of the factors for the uh, effectiveness of the image is the cultural context in which mm-hmm. i'm in mm-hmm. is that what you found to be the case or is there something that transcends the cultural conditioning and if there is something that transcends the cultural conditioning do you have any way of expressing what that something might be i i think it transcends the culture and um and I was surprised by that because I expected them to be very different, right? When I looked at it in whatever, Semitic culture or whatever, I looked at it in Greece, I looked at it in India, in different parts of Pakistan, in different places, I thought, oh, it's going to be all different because the people are so different, the world is so different. But actually, since Tantra is about um, such a, a profound level of existence about beings, the very dynamic of being and appearing and emerging out of un- of a concealed state into an unconcealed state. It's all about what happens when we bo- are born and we die. Mm-hmm. It's all about the most fundable, fundamental levels of reality that give rise to all this, all of this. What turned out was that all these images resonated at a really fundamental level with the dynamic that was being described in the tantric text so when mm-hmm. i practiced arising out of emptiness the state of emptiness in the beginning of the tantric practice you you dissolve into emptiness so you try to pull you pull all your energy when you're actually doing it you pull all your energies in in your body all into your center and you you lose 
all of you don't have you don't have visual experience anymore or anything right then you emerge out of that in a form that you're just purely an image right you're just imaging it that dynamic was being so well guided and described by those images that it was shocking to me um, and it was cross-cultural it didn't matter if I looked at it in Greece or if I looked at it in China or if I looked at it you know some of these images these images are are gathered from different places so they're not just from one place even because mm-hmm. that part of the world was a crossroads right so yeah so in my tantric practice for example it's it's a practice of the death slayer yamantaka who is the fierce form of manjushri who is the buddha form of wisdom and wisdom is all about coming arising right all all about appearing all about it's my practice probably because I was a perceptual theorist. I don't know. I got assigned it. But it really, that was, it speaks to me a lot, the whole issue of what is it to be something, right? It's the, the Tantra is all about being, all about the nature of being, emerging into appearance, dissolving into whatever, right? It's the whole it's the whole dynamic of existence, right? So this Tantra is about that. And the imagery in it is, is speaking to that and it guides it in a way it's the -hmm. the images are you can look at them serially you can look at them all at once you can focus on one part of it because when you practice you don't always look at the whole thing at once you Mm -hmm. do it piece by piece or whatever and each one has a different something to say about that dynamic right it has something else to tell me about that dynamic and i had no idea of that before before I was told, well, you know, it, it's it, they'd give one symbolic meaning maybe. That was it. Not two, not three, just maybe one, right? And it was very intellectual. It was very intellectual. This was not intellectual. So, so I guess again, the question I have is that the doing the practice, mm-hmm. which is not intellectual, <laughs> actually doing it, mm-hmm. uh, uh, creates a. Uh, result or creates mm-hmm. a there there's an experience mm-hmm. that comes out of that so the the people teaching it would have access to that as well but but what you're saying is that they just didn't have access to understand why it was doing what it was doing i and i i think it wasn't as efficacious as it, it as it had been well that's an right. interesting point mm-hmm. so so uh in, yeah. a, in a way then what you're saying is that uh we lost something right? yeah so lost so, so what yeah. what uh um, is it that as someone conceptualized um, the practice, they substituted talking about it for actually surrendering to it? And in that sense, mm-hmm. uh, the talking about it as, in an academic or a scholastic sense mm-hmm. uh, attenuated the, uh, the power associated with it. I think so. They didn't use it as an image anymore and let it speak as an image. They they assigned it, this implement means this, this one means that, and so on. But the really scary thing to me was was not only what had happened in Tibet, from my teachers who sort of kind of didn't even pay attention to the imagery anymore in a way mm-hmm. was that it was now coming to the west and westerners were telling me oh well this is all outdated and now we have to replace it with some other kind of image right we're going to like dress up this guy in like modern street clothes or whatever we these things are 
we don't need these things. And I was thinking, well, I guess maybe we shouldn't throw them out until we maybe take this serious. I mean, look into this maybe at least. So, so that was what propelled me to like start thinking, well, maybe I ought to, maybe I ought to let, let myself look at this more seriously, right? So, so that, that, that's a interesting point in itself because in the West, you know, the creativity of Westerners uh, um, is in a, in a way mixed in with our uh, tendency to uh, want to own things. Yes. I was just, uh, last, last night I was at a uh, meeting with some friends and uh, there was uh, a use of tarot cards and, and the tarot cards were mixing uh old-style tarot symbolism with uh, uh, angelic uh, practices, and, and so it was like a whole new set. And in our store, we sell lots of different... Everyone's got a different uh, uh, tarot card. And yet there's, a, the, there's the challenge of, like, when you start to do, be creative in that way, are you moving away from a core of a practice that... Uh, uh, one might want to understand mm-hmm. more deeply prior to innovating. Yeah, right. I mean, that you take it so casually that you think, oh, I can just throw this out without ever asking yourself whether it has some meaning that you don't have access to, right? I mean, even to want to honor it enough to say, maybe I should pay attention to this. And I, I feel like when the teachers weren't paying attention to it, that makes the student not pay attention to it or feel like, well, I'm culturally superior. I can just replace this with whatever, right? I mean, in in the West, though, there's a a general tendency of um, understanding the spiritual through the psychological model. Exactly. And it seems like this is another example of that where, you know, someone may in good faith appreciate you know that hey, this, there's there's this tradition, but their understanding of what the t- tradition may uh, offer is uh, strictly psychological. So then, from that perspective, it makes sense that the images should be tuned to the cultural context of mm-hmm. the people, because mm-hmm. the images aren't really plugging you into something more fundamental about your being, mm-hmm. because being at that level isn't really an object of psychological inquiry. Exactly, right. No, and I mean, my practice is so grounded in in my devotion to the notion of emptiness. I, that was what attracted me to Buddhism, was the idea of emptiness, mm-hmm. and that's the nature of being. For That's how things exist, right? And that, to me, is the thing that matters most, because in my tradition and all, all Buddhist traditions that I understand well, um, that's the liberating thing. That's the thing that, if you get that right... It changes everything, right? So here you have a tantra that's devoted to the nature of being, and it's got these images, and then we're acting as if those images have nothing to do with the fundamental question of that tantra, which can't be. I just couldn't believe that. So anyway, when I read read Graves, what I thought was, I'm just going to give myself the time to... I'm going to give myself as much time as I did this tantric practice in retreat. I'm going to give myself... that much time to investigate it and like I said I've got this whole book of things and I I just use that as an example because you asked me about what I'm doing now and that's kind of how things go for me you know it's like I don't really know what's going to happen so in 2014 um, I started 
studying Greek. And that was because my teacher, who was my philosophy teacher and undergraduate and who was my mentor until he died in 2012, his son and I were taking care of his knocklas, his, his his library and his writings after he died, and, and we were cleaning out his house and boxing up everything to send to be sta- saved. And his son was a classicist. And hmm. I said, Stevie, I always wanted to learn Greek, but I never went to any place that had, you know, Greek was taught taught where I went. And because I came from the Midwest and in a small place and you didn't learn Greek. So anyway, he said, oh, Christine, you could do it. And I said, no, I'm too old. And he said, no, you can do it. Well, a year later, Steve died. So now Mm. his dad was dead, his mother was dead, and he was dead. And and they were my family. They were my intellectual family. And when he died, um, he had told me this book, a grammar book in for Greek. He said, this is what you should get. And I thought, okay, Steve, I'm going to do this. And so I got the book. I pasted his picture in the front page. And I said, Stevie, this is your gift to me. I'm going to learn Greek. And I taught myself Greek. And that's how it goes, right? And and learning Greek has completely changed my everything. So, so that's it. <laughs> oh, so, so we want to get into that. Yeah, right. Um, uh, well, but first I want to uh, uh, put a little bit more of a bow, if, mm-hmm. if that's uh, possible, on this uh, discussion of tantric imagery. Mm-hmm. Because um, you have all this material. Mm-hmm. Has anyone received... Uh, have you communicated that to anyone? Only basically? one person who practices my tantra. Okay. who's um, from Singapore, and he, he and I both were ordained about the same time, okay. and he's used it. Um, the problem with Tantra is that it's not one of those, and I have taught from one of my students from what I've learned a little bit, mm-hmm. but Tantra isn't one of those things, and I don't believe it's an academic discipline, so I don't feel like I can like say, here, just put this out. So I have 800 some pages of stuff, but I, it's mine. So, I mean, I don't, uh, I'm just keeping it. I don't know what to do. But anyway, I, I feel like it's, it's, it isn't anything you can, I can't publish it. I can't do anything like that. So, um, yeah, but it's transformed my life and my friend who practices says it's really made a huge difference for him. So I'm just, uh, so I have no idea your relationship with actual Tibetan, you know, uh, um, uh, native speakers of mm-hmm. Tibet, etc. At, at this point in your life, I assume because you haven't talked, uh, or you you seem to indicate that you haven't uh, communicated with such folks, um, that you that it hasn't occurred to you as a as a project to do. Um, I feel that there'd be enormous resistance to it mm-hmm. because um, they feel like if they didn't say it and it wasn't written in a book that they have, then they won't. It's mm-hmm. not true. Okay. And um, but the problem is that, like my teacher said, the really sad thing is is not being able to um, use these practices in a way that makes a difference. And I feel like if you can get it to make a difference and the difference is the difference that's described in the texts then mm-hmm. you must be on the right right road and that must be a good thing so that's how i but i don't want to prescribe it for anybody else who wouldn't believe that, you know wouldn't accept that something that was outside of the tradition because this would be considered outside of the tradition it's written by I a see. westerner it's written using texts that are not buddhist texts 
um, sources that aren't Buddhism necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but these these imagery image images didn't I don't think all came from Buddhism either. So right. it's like you know it's like it's this is a very eclectic tradition in a way this tantric tradition. Um, so and it's very hard to trace it right. It's very hard right. to find out what. And when you get it just dumped on your lap in the ninth century in in Tibet or tenth century in Tibet, you just get the results. You don't get the story, yeah, right? I think, from what I understand, you know, it was the northern part of India, and I guess you're saying part of like Pakistan, Afghan- yeah, yeah, Pakistan, well, that, that, Swat that, Valley. That, that that there was this hotbed in like the sixth or seventh century, mm-hmm. and you know, what's fascinating to me about that tradition is that. It impinges on Hinduism, it sure and, does. but it's not Hinduism. It's like prior to, and it impinges on Buddhism. Uh, it's at the same time, Tantra comes like 5th, 6th century, right? And it's the same time when the goddess religions in India get get come up. The local sort of religions start to come up, so you don't have the Brahmin, the Brahmin sort of dominated sort of thing, and you get these local s- cults, right? Kali and all of this stuff. So these things come up all at the same time. So you get a Hindu tantric tradition, which is different, but but you also get the Buddhist tantric tradition, and it seems like it's all kind of coming from the same area. Yeah. But you know it's not written about, and it's not, and because it was one on one, so it was it was one of those things you couldn't talk about. So there isn't, and they didn't write about it. So it's yeah, it's not, it's not happening. And, and as you say, it was at this um, cultural and geographic crossroads of Eurasia. Yeah. So um, I mean, it was really influenced by Greeks because yeah, the Greeks right. had been up there. A lot of these images are. Right. Are Greek images, so, right? So, so that's an interesting question because in the Western tradition, we have the Greek mysteries mm-hmm. and to some extent uh, Egyptian mysteries, mm-hmm. and there was some over, over, you know, cross fertilization there. But mm-hmm. a lot of that tradition ultimately became the uh, basis of the Western Hermetic tradition. Exactly. And Within those traditions, there are certainly uh, uh, theurgic practices where one is visualizing and becoming uh, uh, a particular uh, being mm-hmm. in some form or another. Mm-hmm. It may not be articulated in quite the same way, but there's an understanding mm-hmm. that that, well, in fact, that that practice gives rise to something that's very important for one's understanding of one's the nature of one's being. We've had, we've had a guest on our show several times actually in uh, Sam Webster who um comes out of that that western um tradition that Stuart's just referring to but he has explicitly adopted um you know some Tibetan um y- use of Tibetan images mm-hmm. and so forth and um um, might might be interesting to get the two of you together at some point. It occurs to me. <laughs> I wouldn't want to take my imagery out of my practice because I feel like it's so designed mm-hmm. for the the approach that I have. Mm-hmm. I think that it's so specific. Um, mm-hmm. Although it, ha- like I said, it has in a way universal. Ap- there's a lot of things in it. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of the imagery in there that you can say, well, that's this, that image is that's in Greek myth right that's in greek myth that's in mm-hmm. this myth it's in hindu myths it's in kali sort of you know all these different things but it's so tailored in the way it's shaped in those Text. images yeah okay. it's so sh- shaped but those images also develop over time so that when you read like the root tantra 
the root tantra is not at all it hardly it hardly describes anything compared to the image that we have now. Mm-hmm. So there's okay. there's a development over time. So some of this is later. And then you even get more cross-cultural stuff, right? Because the earlier you go, the you might get, a, in a way, pure. Uh, so you could look at the, like, the root tantra for my practice, and it's, it's very sketchy. It's very, very sketchy. It's, it says kind of generally what's going on visually, but it doesn't give really specifics. It's like as if they, already, they knew so well what they were supposed to imagine that they don't have to t- describe it. And mm-hmm. as the thing goes on over time, the descriptions get more elaborate. So I don't know if that's that they did it. That's just how it gets. It gets from primitive, you know, some rudimentary to more complex. Or, or does it, in fact, did it, was it very complex to start out with and they just didn't bother to describe it because you knew what it would look like, right? Either you were presented with it somehow by a teacher, it was on the wall or whatever. I don't know. You know, I don't really know. Or those images, all they had to do is say, this is how it looks like. And you knew what it looked like because it was so common knowledge. You know, it was Mm -hmm. such a shared thing. In your practice, uh, you work with a single tantra or a single image. So you don't necessarily um, have a variety of different images that you would work with in the same intensive way. Is Is that correct or incorrect? I have more than one one image of my in my time i mean more than one main image to work with but it's um different tantras have different imagery and i've i do different tantras but my main tantra is this i mean i have tantras that is a female main figure and so on but there are a lot of similarities in some parts of it yeah so then my question well then i think i can ask the question uh you you made a comment about elaboration of imagery Mm -hmm. so do you have a intuition based off of your practicing of this kind of visualization of the relative effect of a more elaborate image versus a less elaborate image does it well there's a there's a point of diminishing return so (laughs) there are certain parts of it that are i think are really essential where I mean, there could be like some decorative sort of things, um, and some of the imagery is more decorative, is more baroque, you know. But the fundamental figures and fundamental aspects of it, I think those things have they stay pretty much the same. Okay. Yeah, and they're different. You know, this is a male-centered tantra, so I mean, it's got that energy of men. So I mean, it's got some. It, I mean, not saying that there's only one energy, but there's it's a male-centered tantra. Where there's a female-centered tantra, so they've got a whole different feeling to them, and they look very different. Um, they're often very. The, I think the women, the ones with the female figures in the middle, often are less complicated in some way, because they're getting at things from a, a position that's different from the male point of view. But so I don't. I'm not really sure because I don't. I don't do those so seriously. This is the one I've been doing for, mm-hmm. you know, 25 years. So I, I, you know, it's been a while. So. And you spoke of the practice of 
locating in emptiness and mm -hmm. then um, causing mm -hmm. out of beingness the arising of this tantric form or mm -hmm. oneself as this ta tantric form mm -hmm. and then ultimately I presume the passing out of uh, mm -hmm. uh, expression of that tantric form and mm -hmm. back into mm -hmm. uh, yeah you're uh, constantly going state. back and forth yeah so what, what does that um, uh, for one energetically or spiritually what does that um, open up for in, in terms of practice, understanding? Well, um, when you experience the switch, I mean, that kind of the movement in and out like that, what happens is uh, that is our liberation from suffering in some way in Tantra. Um, we're so stuck in things. We're so stuck in the appearance, right? The the Heidegger's Objects. Heidegger calls it the hegemony of things, mm -hmm. and so uh, you know we're we're yeah objects. We're so stuck in that, and they're so they're so in your face, right? That's what we're worried about all the time. And here, what happens is they become so fluid that first of all, you're in just this ordinary. You start in the ordinary, right? You start your practice just like we're sitting in the room right now. It's an ordinary mm -hmm. room, right? And then you dissolve everything into emptiness and then you arise in this image right it's mm. not this room anymore it's an image right you're, it's and it's you know it is an image it's not it's not a substantial table it's an imagined table if it were a table right so mm -hmm. it's got so you're in this image world it's a world with other people and things in it right and then you dissolve that back into emptiness and you do this several times during a practice right and then at the end you dissolve everything back into you as a normal form, and then you get up and walk around and do your in-between practice. And the in-between state, the post, you're doing this four times a day, right? So it takes four hours maybe to do this, three or four hours. So you're doing this. This is a lot of time. So mm -hmm. you're, uh, <laughs> um, you're constantly being, it, it undercuts the solidity. It yeah. undercuts the claim that this makes on you this this is it right mm -hmm. this is it but it's not not this either right so it's yeah it's it's it transforms your being in the world in a real profound way if you're doing this every day and over and over and over and over as his holiness the dalai lama says you can't view death or birth or anything in the same way you're not thinking about any of these things in the same way anymore because you've been practicing this it transforms everything right all your relationships everything you see and so on it just transforms everything if you're really good at it otherwise like most of us we're just trying our best at mm -hmm. it you know but it still has a, an effect because of the fluidity of this so, right yeah so so in a sense then the the i mean an ordinary uh human consciousness tends to be very identified with the phenomenal and our interpretations of the ph phenomenal we're identified at a sensory level, we're identified at a psychological level, and most most of us live our lives in that mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. And from what I hear you saying, then, is with this experience, the that identification uh, uh, falls away. It's not that the phenomenal world and this this particular channel falls away. This channel is this channel but that our relationship as a being to this channel is changed in a way that 
the phenomenal isn't an occasion for suffering in the same way that mm-hmm. it is in an ordinary human mind. That's a good way to put it. And also our relationship to this I is yeah. completely... Because, you know, I and... I and the the things we're aware of, they arise together, right? So if you're arising together in this interesting way, and then you come back here where you think the I is this concrete thing, and it's here, and then everybody's over there, and they're this concrete thing, and they have this claim on me, and it's like, this is it. And, um, yeah, it doesn't, you know, it's all up. You know, it's all up to me. I got to figure everything out, and whatever. You know, it's all the ordinary attitude towards things. Um, what we call practical, being practical, right? I, I, you know, I'm. It's like when you have those experiences, you start. Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, they're pra- That's practical, but on the other hand, it's limiting, right? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting for us because we were having a conversation with an advocate. Advaita Vedanta teacher uh, uh, yesterday that will air next week and one of the things that you know you describe the you know the precursor for this practice is going to this place of emptiness Mm -hmm. and so a lot of traditions like the Zen tradition puts a a focus on uh, the emptiness Mm -hmm. but there there's something I, I guess I'm hearing from you that's unique about Tantra which is that uh, emptiness now there's another stage which is when from emptiness then you reify a, a world mm-hmm. uh, 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 and dematerialize it and reify the world and dematerialize it and that exercise is a very powerful affirmative demonstration of the nature of the phenomenal mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a way that is I say affirmative because, in a way, it's positive. It's a positive oh, yeah. uh, 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 expression as opposed to the uh, the negative. You know, we use the terms like via negativity of mm-hmm. emptiness, which is that it's not this, it's not this, it's mm-hmm. not this. And there's, there's so there's a kind of a letting go of the phenomenal. Here, you're bringing the phenomenal, you're bringing the phenomenal to the fore, but it's being brought to the fore under uh, uh, an intention as opposed to... Oh, yeah. No, this isn't sutra. What we call sutra emptiness is this. It's uh, it's not, 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 not. Tantric emptiness is uh, we also call clear light. Mm. So clear light is the source of according to this it's it's not consciousness right it's although it's sometimes said to be a mind but it's not a mind it has no objects it has no subjects it's mm-hmm. not it's supposed to be the ground state in some it's somehow the ground yeah. uh, but it's groundless because you can't point to it or anything there's no, there's yeah no right floor. yeah it's a groundless floor right yeah so yeah so it's this um state it's being, you know, it's being in the Western tradition. We use the word for that. It's not a thing that is. It's not like a person or a consciousness or an awareness or so on. It's the, it's where it all comes out of. They call it the Dharmadhatu too, the origin, the source of all things, right? So you're practicing that. That's what you're practicing arising. It's a very, it's very positive because mm-hmm. there couldn't be in tantra. There can't be any appearance without it. it it's the fundamental fabric of, of everything in some strain in some way it, so it's you can't have any of the rest of it without it but it's the one thing we never see we never pay attention to and so in buddhism 
sutra t- emptiness, this sort of not, 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 is a way to start getting at it, yeah. right? Is it, but tantra radicalizes that and says, you know, it's not enough to say that this is not um, substantially existent. It's there's there's you've got to you've got to be able to get into this. Mm-hmm. So so I mean, what I'm hearing is that this uh, what you're describing is. Um, kind of continually recontextualizing our ordinary experience of the world. It's giving rise to it, yeah, yeah. constantly. Well, and it, in Tantra, you, you, if you get really good at it, you're able to experience things at such a quick, low level that you can actually see the stuff arise. So mm-hmm. When you say see the stuff arise, <laughs> what, what you mean? Appearances start. Okay. And then and dissolve, start and dissolve, and mm-hmm. and they do it at such a fast rate that it's it's kind of interesting in terms of perceptual theory because perceptual theory says like the brain states are really they're associated with perceiving and so on. They go through so many hundreds of millis, like yeah. you know. So it's it's like that. It's it's like that. But you're in such an altered state that, but you can you experience that. It's not like when you're starting Tantra, you just imagine it, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're not, it's not experiencing it. But when you can experience it even a little, you realize it's a very dynamic process and it's going on all the time, right? It's not just going on when we die and when we're born. It's going on uh, all the time. Right, yeah. the, the, yeah. the, the creation, the, the, yeah. the, the, the birth and the cessation is mm-hmm. uh, arising in every moment. Yeah. I, um, a question related to that of what you just said is... Um, I've seen in some uh, treatments of Western magical work um, that when um, there's an imagining of, uh, uh, like, the point is working with the element, mm-hmm. um, that it begins, the practice begins with visualization, mm-hmm. uh, but the visualization is like a, almost like a framework uh, until then one encounters the reality, mm-hmm. and that there is a reality that one encounters, or, you know, real, either energy being, energy form, or something like that. Mm-hmm. At that point, you don't have to imagine anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if your experience of the uh, uh, tantric practice is that as one deepens within a particular practice of tantra is there that kind of developmental stage where at first it is it is seemingly you know in a way you are aware of yourself as making an effort to imagine mm-hmm. and then uh there comes a point as one deepens in the practice over time that the uh mm-hmm. you are pulled into mm-hmm. the place as opposed yeah. to you it's, you yeah. doing something yeah it's called the two stages of tantric practice so there's a generation stage and a, a completion stage and generation stage you only imagine it so you're taught all of the specifics about that image and so on, and and every step of the process, you do it by it. You read a text, right? You have a text. You're following a text, and then you learn to just do it without reading the text, and then you learn to just imagine all of this stuff happening, and you keep doing it until the imagery itself takes over. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so that yeah. so it is. A, mm-hmm. It sounds like it's the same uh, yeah. uh, description. Yeah. I found I found that. Very, uh, just very compelling in the sense that uh, mm-hmm. it, that the imagery is a gateway to an objective experience, and you know, again, this this gets back to the Western interpretation mm-hmm. that tends not to acknowledge that realm of experience. Yeah, that, that no. uh, uh, it would stay in the generative because that's that's the safety of the psychological. Mm-hmm. No, and what's really interesting about this is those images. Are that imagery is the trans is the is the 
medium to get at the clear light. There's no other way to get at the clear light without those images. So the until you can stop well, until you can stop thinking and just doing the vision, the vision, and until that vision takes over, it, you don't really have access to those really profound states of the of the what we call subtle subtle consciousness and so on, and ultimately clear light. So the imagery is essential to is a bridge okay. to getting to that. It's not the end. It's it's a bridge to get uh, to the the uh, ultimate. So I'm. I'm I guess I, the question, just for clarification, is uh, even staying within the Tibetan tradition, my understanding of Dzogchen, though, is that there's a uh, a, a body of pointing out type practices mm-hmm. where the nature of awareness mm-hmm. or the nature of mind mm-hmm. is uh, constantly right. um, you know referred to. Mm-hmm. And I always understood that as uh, a... To use the language of our the person we were interviewing yesterday, a direct path mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. knowing. Right. Uh, so that sounds like a different thing mm-hmm. than what you're saying. Exactly. Dzogchen starts. If you think about these paths, so you got a beginning and an end. So Dzogchen jumps in at the end. So Dzogchen says, if we can get a similitude of this mental of this awareness, which is this clear light that's pervading all awareness, right? It's 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 this. being that's pervading all beings and all Mm -hmm. everything that we know and do that if somebody could point that out to us who's got a direct access to it which is happens because i had a teacher who did that for me Mm. it's absolutely startling but the problem is that very few people can actually do that very well have the ability to jump in there so the other way is to jump in a little bit on the beginner side and to image your way into so what happens is once you can do from the Dzogchen side the same experiences happen that come from the other from the like a step by more step by step process using tantric imagery because Dzogchen also does tantric practice but they don't do exclusively tantric so practice. is it is there a question of I mean so the, the, and this is I'm, I'm trying to parse this out for <laughs> myself which is if you could jump in at the end with a reliable guide, um, why would you do the? Um you don't have to if you could, but there's like as my as His Holiness Dalai Lama said to me once, there aren't very many. He said I can't do that. There aren't very many people who can. I don't think reliably do that. And and then even if you could have that experience once, you don't know if you're getting it. Then you have to work, right? It's, it takes work. There's yeah. work that involved. Are you do, are you getting it the same? Are you just remembering it? Are you what? I don't know. You know, it's a it's not easy any way you do it. But there are some people who are meant as that's why they're different tantric paths. Dzogchen yeah. is a tantric path as well, but it's a you jump in a tantra at a different place. So it's. <laughs> um, I think Zen practice is a, is a tantric practice too, because they jump in at the end as well. I mean, they're jumping in at clear light. They're they're trying yeah. to get their mind into the state, that subtle state, and you do it in less subtle forms. The first pointing out is not the is not clear light. The first pointing out that you get is a similitude of clear light. It's not the same thing. I mean, it looks 
similar, but it's not the same thing. When you say first pointing out in, in the Zen tradition, what, what are you referring to? Well, I mean, it, no, in Zogchen Zog oh, okay, tradition, sorry. but it, even in Zen, when you're first pr- you're trying to get your mind cleared out and so on, you're trying to get your mind to get into this state where you're not mm-hmm. grasping on everything and all that. You're trying to get there. Mm-hmm. But what happens is that there's stages of that, right? You go mm-hmm. from, and Zogchen is the same, pointing out the first mm-hmm. time you get it pointed out, you're not really having experience of clear light. Okay. So it takes years and years and years but some people that's their way in Mm. some people their way in in tantra is to do the imagery like more like the geluks and sakya do and some people do mahamudra and dzogchen and mahamudra is also in my tradition of drikung practice is is very similar to dzogchen and it doesn't meditate on emptiness you do you make your mind like the mind you try to make your mind like the mind of clear light. You try to get your mind in that state, right? But you do it not the way you do it through imagery. You do it in different ways. You do it with Dzogchen practice and Mahamudra practice. So, but I'm just telling you, in my practice, we use these images, right? And I've also done, I do Mahamudra because I'm I'm a Dzogchen Kagyu nun, right? So I do Mahamudra practice, but... I started doing practice in Tantra from the Gelug tradition, which was to do this thing through the imagery, right? And and I find it so compelling that I do both. So I sometimes in my practice, I just sit and do the Mahamudra practice, and sometimes I do the visualization practice, right? But each of them has their own strengths, and each of them is for different kinds of people, actually, I think. So, uh, yeah, and I, and I think, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama always said this, and my teacher, um, Chetsung Rinpoche, always said, we can't lose any of these practices. We shouldn't say one's better than the other, because there are so many people, and everybody is going to need a different way. You know, mm-hmm. they're, we're not all the same, and these are precious because of their because they're they're so specific, right? And they also have to do with different bodies. So mm-hmm. people with different bodies and different channel structures and stuff can can't use one or the other. So and there are like all different kinds of tantras like the the tantra of um is, what's the one that his holiness always gives? The Kala Chakra. Kala Chakra Tantra is just totally bizarre. It's it's in its own class. It's not at all like my Tantra, the Guya Samaja Tantra's class. In, of tantra. in what sense? It's got a. It, it dissolves the body. It literally dissolves your body. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so sounds unpleasant. Yeah, it sounds unpleasant. <laughs> I mean, I can't do it. It's way too complicated for me. But it's a, like a whole different way of getting at things. I mean, it, it uses your body, your energy in your body, and it literally dissolves the subtle aspects of the body, right? Until mm-hmm. you actually literally just disappear, right? So uh, and it's not at all like, I mean, I n- won't disappear you doing my Tantra. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and to really practice that well over uh, effectively, one really is is visualizing, experiencing in a multi-sensory way that dissolution. It's oh, not, yeah. It's, it's not a. Uh, no, no. It's not a idea. And no. This is, and this is the product of some um, lifetime. possible. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, oh, that maybe, but um, but but the point you were making earlier is that is that you know essentially your life is devoted to it because you're spending all these hours and hours and hours you get, returning and yeah. you get go. sick if you try to do anything else. 
you literally get ill. So if you want to talk about not feeling well, you try to do Tantra. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I mean, even my experience with people teaching, I've, ex- I've advised them to stop because they wanted to go out and live live an ordinary life. It, it, the two don't work together. You get what we call wind diseases, lung. Mm. You know, you just get sick. You get crazy. You get. It's just. This is a 100% you're in or you're out kind of thing. I mean, you can like train in the beginning stages as a kind of training for future practice or something like that. That's one thing. But when you want to, if you really want this to work, you're not doing it. You're not doing it. You, you haven't got any energy to do anything else. You do, if you do four hours of this, you need to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And then you go, you go to sleep, you eat, you go to sleep, you get up, and you do four hours of it. You go to, you eat, mm-hmm. you go to sleep, you get up, and it just doesn't matter whether the sun is up anymore or the sun is down. You just do this. This is just. Got it. Well, this is such a uh, <laughs> a, a wonderful, perfect contrast to the conversation that Stuart alluded to earlier that we had yesterday with a an Advaita teacher, who who <laughs> was assuring us. Well, well, hold on, Stuart, who who, who was um, assuring us that that. Um, that his direct path was available to seven billion people on the planet, and there was no one for whom it would not be it would not work mm-hmm. and um, and i can 't imagine having human society continue another generation if everyone is uh, practicing in the way you're practicing. Well, so on that, that level yeah. g- give me that Stuart. Yeah, I will give you that uh, I, I mean that's that 's why i 'm actually this is helpful for us because we 're just trying to get a better sense of like you know when when he would when he would point out to someone you know he's pointing out knowingness or he's mm-hmm, point, you know mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. you know it's it's like the advaita thing of always mm-hmm. going back prior going to the i prior right. to the uh right. uh really prior to the am mm-hmm. uh and and always returning people back to that and that's i think that's great and it's a it's a good way for people to begin to recontextualize their identification with the phenomenal mm-hmm. And but he acknowledged at the same time that there's a uh, you know uh, there's a process of stabilization mm-hmm. and there's um, and then there's a sort of a tantric side which is uh, bringing it into the world again or bringing mm-hmm. it into your life and if we had any sort of quibbles it's like I, I my sense is he, he's he's selling the uh, front end of the process as a very uh, accessible to oh, everybody yeah, right. and. Uh, then there's the stabilization of that, and then there's the actual bringing it into life, and those are the areas where the heavy lifting of most spiritual traditions mm-hmm. uh, uh, that's reside. Where it gets, that's where it's yeah, that's where it's 100. percent I yeah. mean, there's no way. And even if you could do the part where you do the, dissolu- the do that part of it, right, the dissolution and all of the stabilization and so on, bringing it back in is really hard. So that's very difficult. And Zen is is the is for me this tantric tradition that really focuses on bringing it back in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, yeah. Well, we have dissolved the hour, the first hour <laughs> of the uh, uh, show. So, but we'll bring it back in about seven or eight minutes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, stay tuned. Uh, we need to take a short break at the hour. You're listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we speak in the studio with our good friend Christine Skarda, an ordained Tibetan Buddhist nun, a philosopher and scientific theorist whose professional career has spanned the fields of philosophy, neurophysiology, and cognitive science. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical selections on today's program are from a CD called Short Tales for a Vial. 
English music of the 17th century for viola da gamba and lira viol, performed by Vittorio Gelmi. This track is called A Pavan.
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Kudnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week, Rob and I speak in the studio with our good friend Christine Skarda, an ordained Tibetan Buddhist nun, a philosopher and scientific theorist whose professional career has spanned the fields of philosophy, neurophysiology, and cognitive science. Well, that first hour was was a was a fun uh, roller coaster ride for us. But I, um, we had when we invited you, we had uh, um, all pretty much agreed that we were going to be talking about language with reference to spiritual practice and uh, and philosophy. Um, and so I want to uh, refocus our attention to that general area. I, I'll proceed um, what is said uh, after what I say, because uh, this has long been an, an interesting arena for me, because there are, there, you know, I was, I was, uh, I grew up Roman Catholic, I uh, was an altar boy, and I was at the cusp of whatever you would call it, 1500 or 1000 years of the uh, Latin Mass being said in Latin, and I had to re-memorize the whole darn thing as an altar boy in English, which I thought was a terrible imposition. Mm -hmm. And also there was, it seemed to me, there was something lost. Um, I I don't know if I want to go into that in particular. But then later in life, you know, as a... Not not just as in association with this show, but you know, I developed friends in many different spiritual traditions as I was pursuing my own practice. I found that there's there are ideas like Sanskrit is is the truest best um, language for the expression of uh, spiritual ideas, um, and um, I mean it's not it's not as if there aren't. It's like you, you, the Hopis might say that if you speak Hopi, then you have access to things that you don't have access to when you speak English. And actually, I'm perfectly fine with acknowledging that, you know. And yet, um, poor English speaker that I am, I, I don't want to, I don't want to preclude the possibility of my 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 fellow um, uh, English speakers to actually do interesting things in the world of spiritual practice so so that's kind of that's kind of the 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 gra- the um, substrate that I want to yeah. uh, start talking and, from and I want to add just uh, another consideration which is um, the question as you as you get into any language like this uh, is the uh, what is it the uh, sapir wharf hypothesis that the the idea that uh, language itself conditions how we uh, experience or see reality mm-hmm. and uh, so the use of language in a spiritual practice is interesting because there's a question oh. as to the degree to which that conditions how we uh, actually experience there's, and access the practice. I, I just finished, I mean on that, on precisely the point you just raised Stuart, I just finished reading a book uh, called Through the Language Glass which uh, um, recontextualizes shall we, shall we say uh, superior, the superior wharf hypothesis, ninety-five percent uh, uh, tramples it in the dust, yeah, yeah. but um, but nevertheless uh, reestablishes uh, that there is that, that there's not nothing mm-hmm. to the way that 
language shapes how we think mm-hmm. and even interact with one another. Mm-hmm. So, so with that, with that, I've uh, got to read that book. Yeah, yeah it's good. <laughs> yeah. It's so, good. So, so then, uh, uh, tell us about ancient Greek. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I wasn't, as I said, wasn't planning to study ancient Greek, and suddenly I was studying ancient Greek, and I thought, I'm, I can do this. You know, I speak German, I read French, I can speak French, I do Italian, I, you know, I'm, I do, I spoke Dutch uh, or Flemish actually, but same. You know, I lived in India, I can understand Hindi and Nepali, I can. So I thought I can do this, and I started, and I thought, oh my goodness gracious, this is. <laughs> Oh, what have I done? And I had promised Steve, so it was like I was I was committed to this because it's like a family thing, right? So mm-hmm. um now four and a half years later, um I taught myself the entire advanced grammar, which would be like graduate school level grammar, and I did it all by myself and it took me almost a year and a half just to do it, which a person would do in an advanced rush course like in a summer, but it took me a long time uh-huh. because I'm old and I can't remember everything as well anymore. So anyway, um, I just couldn't. I just, I mean, first of all, when you learn it, all you're doing is trying to figure it out to translate it, right? You're just yeah. trying to, like, you know, the, the hoplites ran across the plain, mm-hmm. and, or Homer's brother was taught to read by so-and-so or something like that, you know? And it just looks like another language that's, like, not English, but it's, like, English in spirit, right? It, I mean, in some way, you get that feeling, because all you're trying to do is, like, get, what does this word mean, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm-hmm. but all the time, it's like, this this language is just kicking me and kicking me and kicking me, and it's, I don't know, it's like saying, I don't want I don't want to be. I don't want to be understood the way you're understanding me. I, I, for some, you know, I don't. Don't try to translate me into English, right? Stop mm. translating me. Uh, just read me, or somehow. So I started reading fragments of Her because well, I'm a philosopher, right? So I started reading like Heraclitus, Parmenides, like fragments. I thought, oh my goodness gracious! And then I got some Aristotle and Plato in my text, and I'd read them, and I thought. They're not saying anything the way I... Not only are they not saying anything the way I say it, it's just coming out of some place I don't get. I mean, there's some of these verbs... I mean, these verbs are are, are just, like, crazy. I, they, they've got so many forms of mm-hmm. each one. Um, there are all these things that I never... I don't know what it... What are these things? Aorist. What is optative? What is... I mean, all these things everything has a case ending everything the sentences read like greek i mean they're just like and i mean not greek in the language i mean like greek there's like uh, they don't say like i i gave the cake to 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 rob mm-hmm. it could be the i cake gave it could uh, words can be any place in the sentence like sanskrit can be any place in right. the sentence because the endings tell you what belongs together so it's like solving a puzzle so i felt like a computer programmer half the time you know having to what goes together here oh here's the article and it goes at the end of the sentence with that thing over there and it's like <laughs> what's going on um and then i started reading uh, this last year i've been starting to really read you know not learn grammar but mm-hmm. i still have i brought along my 
my cheat sheets. This is my grammar cheat sheets. I have to look up a lot of things. I am not a classicist. Uh, this is hard for me. So I'm not <laughs> saying I'm an expert at this, but I'm a philosopher. So I looked... This is speaking to me as a philosopher, not as a classics major, not as a linguist, not anything. Mm-hmm. I'm not. So I started looking at it, how what was happening in the sentences and and what was this thing called aorist. And mm-hmm. you, you, Rob, sent me a link to this book by Andrea Marco Longo, The Ingenious Language, Nine Epic Reasons to Love Greek. And um, that was just a couple weeks ago. So it wasn't very long ago, and I actually, I ordered it the same morning, and Mm -hmm. I got it, and I've really read it, and she's really helped me in many ways, but I don't see it exactly the same way she sees it. She sees the the these things in a kind of more which would fit us very well uh, we've talked about psychological she sees it more psychologically mm-hmm. i don't see the greek language psychologically i i see it as a language that's really well fitted to get at what really is essential mm. and the greek language on I don't think that this is true of Sanskrit, but I don't do Sanskrit. Sanskrit's, as far as I can see when I read about why Sanskrit's so so special, is that it really doesn't have nouns, but it has descriptors. So it describes things, and those things can be described. A tree could be described in many, many different ways, depending mm. on your position of what, if you're okay. an ant or a person or or from far or near or whatever. So you don't, there isn't like a word for tree, but there's something like moving in the wind or whatever. Whatever, you know that so it's descriptive in that way and that is why it's so interesting is that it can say something about something in so many ways because it's not so tied down in the sense that the wor- one word for one thing right and so it's sense, more about yeah it's yeah, got so a kind of flu it's kind of fluid in the sense that it's got all these ways to approach things right so it's a it's implicitly processual kind of yeah kind of but it's still it's still about things the thing thing stuff mm-hmm. is still really important okay in in greek the most important thing is verb okay. that's why these verbs are so weird you know and this is ancient greek this is not koine greek i'm not yeah. talking about mm-hmm. koine only ancient greek so and it's got all of these Case. Oh, we should we should say for listeners that that is a later oh, um, form of Koine arises when when um, Alexander the Great's father conquers Greece. So Philip of Macedon. Yeah, Philip. So right after after Philip, so Alexander the Great time. So three he dies in 323 BC. So from about 323 BC till the fall of the Byzantine Empire, which is 1400 something, it was the lingua franca of the world, right? Koine. Mm-hmm. Koine. Yeah. Koine right. Greek. But Koine Greek eliminates all the stuff that's really cool about Greek. Because mm. it's simplified over, it, it's a simplified version of Greek. So. That's so interesting because, because of course, that's exactly what English is. Exactly. But, uh, but that's a tendency of languages in general is to simplify over time to, like, um, eliminate endings like unum from uh, Latin. Right? It mm-hmm. becomes un in French. It becomes un. Uh, you so know. We, we should point out that the, these uh, books we were talking about, though, uh, on like the uh, process of language, uh, there is a reciprocal 
grammatical process where endings come back again. Oh, yeah, right. It's, it's, it's almost like the grammatical sense becomes particles, mm-hmm. becomes oh, words, well, but, but, and then but, the words fuse back again with the uh, language, and you end up with endings. But the point, <laughs> the point, the point here is that, is that both Koine and English... Um, have the simplification ha- have had the the simplifications you're pointing to precisely because they um they were part uh, they experienced processes where different language speakers were interacting with mm-hmm, each other, mm-hmm. and people can't keep all mm-hmm. the complications from all the different languages together. Yeah, in their head. I brought along my thing here in this page. Like, who could keep that all in their head, right? Yeah. Especially when it's not their world, right? In a way, it's but, not right. their world. Well, can you give us a taste then of the verb in the ancient Greek? Well, the word to speak, for example, lego, has got. Um, uh, it's got forms in the pre- active sense, which are present, future, um, imperfect. So that would be I speak. I. Uh, so we only speak, have yeah. we only have present, past, and future, right? I I I yeah, I speak. I have spoken. I will speak, right? I had spoken. We, yeah, we, right. We do yeah, well, we do that. those things. Yeah, but we don't have so many. <laughs> yeah, we and and it all depends on helping words. Yeah, it really does. So anyway, Lego Lego has got. For its um, arrow is its is its um, or lezo is it arrow or lezo are its future forms. Um, Apon and eleza are its aorist forms, and I'll talk about aorist in a minute. Eka and eloxa are its perfect forms, and then it's got um, it's got passive forms that are specific to passive and aorist perfect. So it's got all these things and they don't even, lots of them don't even look alike. So, so when we look at like, for example, I brought this from her, from her, her, the Marco Longo's book, the word to see or rao, um, there are a bunch of words for seeing in, in Greek. Theao is one and, um, Ophthamai is one, but anyway, she she puts these this one and she says the various stems of arau. So arau is the present. Ophthamai is will I will look I will look. Ophthamai, Adon is look. That's the aorist. Oida is is the perfect tense, and then Ophthane is the. <laughs> Very <laughs> another form. Yeah. So they don't even look alike. They don't sound alike. And you know what? They don't really even mean any the same thing, even though mm-hmm. they're parts of the same stem. So, so anyway, what was what was really interesting to me was the way they use these these stems in in um, Greek are totally independent of time, and ours aren't. Our stems are tied to time. So seesaw. We'll see. So, they're time. They're temporal. These aren't temporal. They're like they're cut off from the temporal. They don't have. Hmm. So they're not temporal stems. So if they're not about time, what are they about? Right? They're not. You don't necessarily use the one that says it's perfect for what we'd use perfect for because ours is a temporal sense. We use it when it's. I have seen, or I, you know, I saw. Right? Mm-hmm. I saw. Right, you don't necessarily, and you can't translate it that way either. Hmm. So, what's going on with these verbs if they're not tied to time in the same way as ours are tied to time? Um, 
And I started looking at that as a philosopher and as a practitioner, because my main interest, like I said, is in being. And my main interest is in this whole process of emerging, which is what being is, emerging and concealing. I see like the basic dynamic is between being concealed and unconcealed and and then falling back into concealment again. There's a sense which this trans and I'm also very I have to say very influenced by my phenomenological background with Martin Heidegger because he put a lot of emphasis on um the question of being he was he was a, he worked with Edmund Husserl all of my philosophical tr- training is in phenomenology and Edmund Husserl was very interested in um the nature of conscious awareness of something so he wanted to describe conscious states of awareness and what they are aware what they are aware of and the structure of those states and the what it counts mm. to be an object of a state for that kind so when i imagine um, this room, or when I see this room, or when I remember this room, or how is the structure of that state different that makes the object appear to me to be different in some way, right? So he was, and Heidegger said, you know, well, that's all very interesting, but what about the whole fact that the thing is, that the thing, those things are, that we have this notion of presence that's available, you know, that something is present to the mind, that something appears, that something emerges right that the awareness and the thing of being aware that they're emerging there together and and they're present for one another nobody asks about that that's the question of being right that's Mm -hmm. the question of and that was what we were talking about last hour about tantra is this whole issue of arising so then i i looked at my greek language and the greeks were primarily i mean they lived in i would say Think about the question of concealment and unconcealment as the soup in which they lived. Hmm. It's like the thing that they're, they don't have to talk about it, but it's like the thing that frames everything that they're talking about. The, the question always, everything that they see is, is, a, is, is locked into this dynamic of emergence and concealment, if you think about it. Hmm. It's not that they're always, they do talk about it, and they do talk about it in terms of the, what they call truth, because aletheia in Greek means unconcealment. It doesn't mean correctness. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean okay. it's about this process of unconcealing, right? This okay. how we emerge together with the thing we see or remember or whatever. It's this emergence and then the subsistence. And, and I thought, well, here's a language that, that verbs are the most important thing. Forget the nouns, forget the adjectives, forget it. I mean, they're important, but they're not the important thing. The important thing that determines what's going on here is the verb. And then they have this verb form called the aorist, mm-hmm. which we tend to tend to translate in the past, just simple past. Cause, but it's not temporal. It isn't temporal at all. In fact, there is no, except in the indicative present form, it doesn't have a, a temporal form at all. It doesn't. It isn't temporal at all. It has to do with simply that the, the event, saying, um, seeing, um, whatever. It's 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 a, like it's about this event. It's about this event. It's like, and then they have like three tenses that are really really important, right? So present perfect and the aorist 
So, so, the, so the aorist is an, is a tense. It's not it's a, a mood. Tense. It's a tense. Yeah, yeah. It's not a mood. It's not like active, passive, or anything, or whatever, optative, and so on. No, it's it's a uh, it's got its its own. Th- it's in all of them, right? It's in passive. It's in hmm. middle. It's in active forms. It's in everything, but. They don't really explain it to you when you're learning it. I, you know? I, I've yet to. If you can, if I can leave this conversation with an understanding of the aorist. Well, I, um, I was. I brought the. I brought Marie her book, and she defines it like this. She said, um, "Well, she says, well, no aspect." She says, um, and an aorist, and most of the Greek verbs are about aspect. They're not about time. An aspect isn't about when something comes up. It's about how it comes up. Mm. Okay. It's about the howness of it. It's being, right? So is it... Aorists sometimes dis- they'll distinguish between perfective and imperfective. Something that's un- ongoing and something that's already completed, okay. right? Or aorist is sometimes described by people as what's looking at an event from the outside and looking from the inside. So it's like when it's ongoing, it's looking at it from the inside, experiencing it from the inside. Mm-hmm. I am speaking, right? I am speaking. This is a thing that's emerging, ongoing, and it's just kind of ongoing, right? So, so, so the verb to speak has an aorist uh, mm-hmm. tense. Mm-hmm. And so if I say I am speaking using the first person, uh, that it's it's an aspect but what is it is it is that's it, the that's the that's the um imperfective that's the ongoing yeah. sort of progressive notion so that's present tense right that's it's, right. It's, that's included I, in the present tense right but but is the aorist a different tense mm-hmm. okay so i so if i were to say i i speak spack, <laughs> i speak that there's no sense in which you could be doing that now. You could have done it some other time. Uh, uh, you uh, know, you could have done mm. it in the past. You may think you might do it tomorrow. It doesn't really matter, right? I mean, you might not have said anything I, I for see. 20 years, right? So speaking as the as an event, right, as an event. Okay. So I think what's so cool about this is that is that what happens to it is that it makes the Greeks so aware of this it's played out in this process of emerging and concealing. Because the progressive notion of the present tense is is this emergent sense and ongoingness. It starts and it's going on, right? It starts. Mm-hmm. It's something happening. It's, it's it's something happening that's just starting to go on, and it or it's ongoing and repeating, right? So it's an event that's happening, right? And then the aorist is, and then the perfect perfect tense to me is like it's concluding so it's coming to an end right it's and so you're looking back from the perfect onto something that happened right you look uh, i spoke right i spoke you're looking in the present onto something that's closed it's Mm -hmm. closed up right and the aorist is just the sheer openness of this event is just this openness so i see it like they're really and they're they use these verbs to talk about this process. This process is the most important thing. It's not the time of the thing. It's this process of emerging, being, 
and closing. Mm-hmm. So, so when you read Heraclitus or you read Plato, mm-hmm. are they using? Mm-hmm. So they're they're making rich use of this these distinctions. And they're these choosing tenses. the word they the tense they use not in terms of time but in terms of what what's happening, uh, how they want to describe what's happening, right? And what I thought was really cool was she. She she picks out this word looking, right? The orao word. So mm-hmm. um and what I thought was really cool is you really see first of all you see that the stems here, orao, opsumaya, um, adon oida and opthane, they don't look or sound at all alike, right? So they I mean seesaw they sound sort of like you know, right? They don't sound alike, they don't look alike, and you know what? They aren't alike because they're so radically different when they use them. Mm-hmm. So when you look look orao, that's in the that's I look. That's I am looking, right? That's I am looking present, right? Mm-hmm. Um it's it's this something's a it's happening, right? right. It's, it's like something emerging, happening. I'm looking now, right? It, it does. It, it could be now, yesterday. It doesn't matter. But I am. I am looking. I have this sense of this dynamic emergence. And then forget the future because future is hardly ever used. So you, they don't use future very. It's like it doesn't exist. And in modern Greek, it doesn't exist anyway. They only use the word I wish and then the verb. I wish for. Oh, sorry. That, that, for that in itself is very interesting. Yeah, but that's because Greek doesn't really care about the future. I don't think very much. So anyway, I mean, Greeks were really concerned about what was happening now. <laughs> and then there's the perfect, the adon, adon, the look, right? The look, right? Adon is really weird. That's the word that um, P- um, Plato uses to talk about the ideas. Mm. Adon is the root for idea. Eden, so, mm. and it doesn't mean I look exactly. It means the look. And according when you think when you read about you know when I do work on Greek philosophy and and Plato and before especially, you realize that they have a sense of the perceiver that is not a subject looking out at an object, but a subject and object emerging together with looks, right? So the object looks at us as much as we look at it. Mm-hmm. So the the eye is called is said to have light in it. Uh, it has mm-hmm. light in it because it's it's being looked back at by the thing, and 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 the thing shows its it gives a look, a countenance to us, right? It shows a a look to us it shows chairness to us so so i mean uh, forgive me for the interruption but uh, um i'm immediately thinking co-emergence in a buddhist exactly sense. yeah it really is it's very much like that okay. right okay um so this adon this perfect is really more about the look that things are showing to one another than it is about looking it's it's not about a subject looking at an object it's mm. about the look that the two of them have for one another wow. so so that's the perfect that's the and then then we have this and then we have this oida oida doesn't mean anything it doesn't mean look at all actually it it gets listed as a different verb but it's not it's it belongs to this verb stem and it actually means i know hmm. so there we have in the midst of this this paradigm for this orao verb to look, we have a verb that actually means I know. But why do we know it? Because the look has been shown to us and we've looked back, we've been looked at, and now we know the thing, right? So we have this, in the middle of this verb, we've got this tense that looks like 
that's got a really different meaning, but it's all about the process. It's all about the process of what happens when we look, what happens when looking happens, right? And I think that's like, to me, that is so fascinating as a philosopher. Um, The last one is is the perfected, really ultimate. I have looked, or I, uh, you know, I looked. Somebody, I looked. Somebody saw me. They saw me. I've I've looked, right? But I love this idea of. The one is the looking starts and emerges. Um, the looking is 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 there is an event, right? And then this idea of having the look aspect of it. So, so I the do. look is known. Yeah, yeah. And then the look passes. Yeah, and then it passes. It closes, right? So you get this. So so it. So they're like. The looker is emerging into this openness, and then going, and so, then we're going back so, into the close. So, right? in the sense, in the sense, then uh, there's the emerging, which is uh-huh. like the present indicative, mm-hmm. and then a later phase of that process is the uh, aorist, mm-hmm. which, which is the uh, awareness of the uh, of being and the looking. It's process. the simple being of that. Yeah, process. the being of, yeah. and, and mm-hmm. then there's the passing away mm-hmm. into the uh, past. I looked. The, I saw. Right. I I know. Right. I know. Right. I know because I looked. I, and I think that this is so fascinating because it shows that they have such a sense of being located into the in this process of emergence and concealment, and they're using their verbs that way. And the verbs are the most important things in their sentences. And I I think that's so interesting. They'll use a verb that we w- would identify as past, and it doesn't have that. It doesn't have any past sense at all in that context, right? So what what's I think that's really, I mean to me that's really fascinating. Um, it makes it a in, really intriguing language. And, of course, this is all totally lost. Within 12 years or so, when Koinike emerges, this is all gone. Aorus disappears, completely disappears. It's gone. So was, was it even by that time uh, uh, something that was a peculiar uh, convention that philosophers would use, or was it, was it just an aspect of the everyday language? It was in Homer. Okay, so. I mean, everybody recited it, right? So it wasn't esoteric in any way. But it isn't that they're necessarily aware of it. I don't know. You know what I mean? It's well, but it, it would have a feeling. Yeah, it has a feeling to it. And when I read, I kept getting this kind of feel like, what's going? Why is he using that tense? Because I'm thinking time, and he's using it as I'm telling you about this how how it's how it is, right? How it is, not when it is. I'm t- talking about how it is and how mm-hmm. you are supposed to, how you're in it, how you're relating to it or I'm relating to it. It's like, it's th- that's important, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to like pull it back into, you know, Aristophanes said so-and-so yesterday and now he said this and whatever. I'm you know, like, I'm translating the thought the symposium right at the moment, right? And it's a dialogue, right? But they're using verbs like this instead of like we would use them. And he said something or another, right? And so-and-so said this and blah, blah, blah. But they're not saying it that way. They're saying like something. They're talking about it. He's caught in an event right now, and it's like this, right? He's he's in this event this way, right? And I thought, isn't that fascinating for a tantric practitioner, I'm like I'm totally fascinated by that because I think I'm supposed to pay attention to being emerging and and subsiding, right? Yeah. You know, that's what I'm supposed to pay attention to, and that's got a and that's got a uh, 
that's that's a form of salvation from suffering. And here I have a language that won't let me not pay attention to it. And I thought, isn't that bizarre? Because I didn't expect that. I just thought these things just went kind of somehow one-to-one. I mean, Aora, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the Aorist eventually is just translated as past, simple past, simple past. But it isn't simple past. Mm. It's not simple past. It it becomes simple past, but and then it just disappears. Because if you if it's simple past, you just translate it by past. You don't need it. Right. And Koine says, junk that, junk all this, right? We don't need optative. We don't need all these moods either. We don't need optative is a mood just for what might what pro- might happen, not probably. If it's probable, it's 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 um it's not it's in a different it's in a different it's subjunctive. Is is a uh, optative uh, about what I wish or what I want or yeah, it- kind of, but but only if they're probable, but but not. No, only if it's possible, but it, but not but probable. Not, okay. If it's probable, then you have to do it in subjunctive. So, so it's kind of like it, 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 it's logically pro- uh, possible. Yeah, it's yeah, logically so the possible. the speaks of the logically possible. But it's got this kind of sweet sort of sense to it because you know when you read like Homer or something and one like the like the nursemaid of you know what and says if only so and so hadn't t- gotten on that ship and gone to Troy, she uses the optative. And she's using the optative rather than subjunctive because she wants to. You want to know that this is just so yearningly. It was possible, but it just never. You know, it just never. It's not going to happen. It was like fate was against it. It was like forget it. This is going to be a disaster, right? And and you already know it is because this is when Hector's coming home. So you know all the stories. But I mean, it's just yeah. It's just like we can get rid of that because we just have wish. This is this is fascinating. Uh, you know, you mentioned Aristophanes, but in the symposium, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, but then, uh, you know, um, when I was a teenager, I found translations of Aristophanes, mm-hmm. the playwright, mm-hmm. and it's hilarious stuff if mm-hmm. it's translated well. But now I'm I'm like wondering about was this a you know was this Aorus? Yeah, it case? was in him. Yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> and I'm like I'm like how does that how does that uh, affect humor, mm-hmm. the expression of humor. Oh, a I'm lot. Fr- I mean, especially if he's using uh, the optative and subjunctive in different ways. So it's ones that got to, it's possible or probable. Mm-hmm. So you can read right off the verb if it's going to be probable. Yeah. And that's right. sheer possibility. And oh, I wish, but it's never going to happen, right? You right, can read right, that right, right off the verb. And and you know, it's really hard to translate. To get yeah. that feeling for it. Now that's true of any language. I love German. Sure. I love German. German can do things that English cannot do. English can do things that German cannot do. But nobody ever forced me to look at a verb this way. Mm-hmm. None of the languages I ever spoke did this. Yeah. And I, I just thought, and no, no language I've ever spoken has made the verb the most mm. important thing like that. So it's so process oriented you know it's not like when i read about sanskrit and they say well you know we can do all these things with all these descriptors and so on that's i don't really care about that you can describe it so many i mean it actually i mean they have they have the idea that you know all of the adjectives and so on the properties of the thing are the thing that matter right Mm -hmm. well in greek thinking the whole notion of object and property doesn't happen until aristotle they don't have any way to describe they don't have a thing in its properties until 
Aristotle invents words for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're reading Plato, he's struggling to say that this is just a property of something. He's mm. struggling to say it. He can't say it. He doesn't have any words for it. But if that's what's true of Sanskrit, Sanskrit has that from the beginning, but Greek didn't have that. Interesting. Huh. So do you find then that the uh, relationship to Greek philosophy is shifting because of this insight that... Mm-hmm. that you're appreciating that maybe there's a, a different reading of it or a different appreciation of the... Uh well, now I understand why Aristotle said that the being of beings is the true subject matter of a philosopher, that it's the essential question, and thinking about thinking that question is the, the thought that needs to be thought. Um, even though he doesn't really talk about concealment, he does talk about appearing, right, emerging and so on. The uh, the concealment of it, they just kind of take for granted. But you see, for example, in the myths, in the that even Plato, which is relatively late, because we're starting to head to the point of it's gone, right? It's we're, we're getting close to the end of this language. Um, he he has all these myths, for example, in the Politeia, which we unfortunately refer to as the Republic, but it's not. It's about polis. It's about this polis. Polis is another word for being, actually. It's it's what makes hmm. us into humans. Oh, okay. Right. So um, so anyway, you know, the myths in the Politeia, both of them, the cave myth. Mm-hmm. And the myth at the end, the myth of Ur, when he talks about this hero who comes back from the dead, mm. um, both of those myths are about emergence and um, about appearance, appearing in emergence and concealment. And how, for example, in the l- last myth, the myth of Ur, it's how all of us come into life with con- concealment as part of our nature mm-hmm. and um that we're engaged in this process of emerging with all beings w- w- with us right that we're caught up by being that we're basically caught up by being which for me you know makes all the sense in the world as it somebody who's interested in tantra and the question of emptiness and clear light i mean for me this is like these aren't these aren't on these are easy to understand i mean when if in fact concealment and unconcealment are the basic ways in which you exist in your world and and experience your world then anytime anybody talks about a cave or darkness or anything it doesn't have to be a symbol of any it, it's just expressing that fa- that dynamic right it's just an hmm. aspect of that dynamic so of course it would be a cave allegory of course it would be um it would be this myth of ur in the end and and the whole thing about this this hero Ur who dies and then on the battlefield and goes to dies and finds and he's led through the process of rebirth. The whole thing that's really interesting about him is that um, he's got he's going to be able to say something about this mm-hmm. and that he's he gets involved in this place which is described as demonic. And it's demonic, not in the sense it's like a demon. It's a demonic in the sense that we're getting to the essential. We're getting to something that's essential mm-hmm. and normally hidden. And that is being itself. Is, is, its home is there. That being hides and it gives forth, right? It, it's, it's an emergent thing and it's a hiding thing at the same time. And that's why the, he's, he describes this um, place as the, as the as a plane of forgetfulness or a, or a demonic plane and so on. And it's because of that, because we're getting at what philosophers are supposed to talk about, the essential, right, being. 
Perfect. Yeah. Uh, so that that is where we uh, uh, th- that is the last word. <laughs> <laughs> well, except that that we'll we will look forward to uh, um, hearing more about being in future and in, in, in a future Indeed. show and and what what further um, insights arise as you continue your exploration so, of uh, philosophers yeah. in the original Greek. So thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> it's been, it's been a, a wild ride, and we very much appreciate it. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. A wild, a, a wild philosophical ride, right. <laughs> which, which isn't quite the same as the other kind. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week, Rob and I have been speaking with our good friend, Christine Skarda, an ordained Tibetan Buddhist nun, a philosopher and scientific theorist whose professional career has spanned the fields of philosophy, neurophysiology, and cognitive science. Next week on the show, we feature a conversation pre-recorded on February 28th with Rupert Spira. From an early age, Rupert Spira was deeply interested in the nature of reality. At the age of 17, he learned to meditate and began studying and practicing the teachings of the classical Advaita Vedanta tradition under the guidance of Dr. Francis Rolls in Shantananda Saraswati, the Shankara Acharya of the north of India, which he continued for the next 20 years. During this time, he immersed himself in the teachings of P.D. Ospensky, Krishnamurti, Rumi, Ramana Maharshi, Nisargadatta, and Robert Adams until he met his teacher, Francis Lucille, in 1997. Francis introduced uh, Rupert to the direct path teachings of Atmananda, Krishnamenon, Jean Klein, and the tantric tradition of Kashmir Shaivism, and more importantly, directly indicated to him the true nature of experience. In his meetings, Rupert explored the perennial, non-dual understandings that lie at the heart of all the great religious and spiritual traditions, such as Advaita Vedanta, Kashmir Shaivism, Hinduism, Buddhism, mystical Christianity, Sufism, Zen, etc., and which is also the direct, ever-present reality of our own experience. This is a contemporary experiential approach involving silent meditation, guided meditation, and conversation, and requires no affiliation to any particular religious or spiritual tradition. All that is required is an interest in the essential nature of experience and in the longing for love, peace, and happiness around which most of our lives revolve. Rupert is the author of The Transparency of Things, Contemplating the Nature of Experience, Presence in Two Volumes, The Art of Peace and Happiness, and The Intimacy of All Experience, The Light of Pure Knowing, 30 Meditations on the Essence of Non-Duality, The Ashes of Love, Transparent Body, Luminous World, the the Tantric Yoga of Sensation and Perception, The Nature of Consciousness, Essays on the Unity of Mind and Matter, and The Essence of Meditation, Volume 1, Being Aware of Being Aware. Tune in for that show on March 7th from 4 to 6 p.m. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, The Art of Spiritualizing with author Roger Plunk. And his book is The Art of Spiritualizing. That'll be at Many Rivers Books and Tea, Thursday, March 5th, 7.30 p.m. Author Roger Plunk will discuss his new book, The Art of Spiritualizing, with emphasis on the use of spiritual medicines, that is, psychedelics, for spiritual development. The Art of Spiritualizing is a primer on spirituality, from mindfulness to the use of spiritual medicines. It is an attempt to distill thousands of years of spiritual experiences and philosophy into a small, simple, and understandable book. Roger Roger Plunk studied philosophy as an undergraduate and holds degrees in law. He has worked as a sculptor and as a consultant on public international law, giving counsel to His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Afghan commander Ahmad Shah Massoud. 
And then on Friday, March 13th, uh, at Many Rivers, as part of an ongoing class in and March. By the way, so there's no no class on March 6th. Yeah, so Angels, the Native Way with Native Californian healer Trina Vega. Normally these are Fridays. The next uh, installment will be March 13th, and then the subsequent March, uh, Fridays in March. Trina writes, I have experienced angels my entire life of a short journey on Earth of 62 years. It will assist you in linking with and hearing your own angels. Come join us in really getting to know your angels, spirit guides, and guardian angels. I will also include hearing from past loved ones. Let's start off the new year with opening to the spiritual native realm of angels. Please contact me at 707-391-7373, and I'll be more than happy to answer any questions. Many blessings, Trina Vega. Trina Vega is a Native American uh, healer who practices a diverse menu of healings from Native Grandmother Ocean to healing with the angels. She is an intuitive reader and has practiced and offered readings for 30-plus years. She is a youthful and energetic grandmother to 18 grandchildren. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. We'll leave you with music from a CD called Short Tales for a Vile, English music of the 17th century for Viola da Gamba and Lara Vile, performed by Vittorio Gielmi. This track is another Pavan. Thank you.